Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Blockhead. Today we've got part two of our marathon-length interview with the great Lynn Johnston of the beloved and legendary comic strip For Better or For Worse. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you ought to head on over to the archive and check that one out because it's guaranteed not to disappoint. Today we've got even more interesting conversation about her great comic strip, about Charles Schultz, and about her friendship with the great cartoonist and and many, many other things. So I hope you will enjoy it. I know you will enjoy it. The world has turned upside down since last I posted, since last episode went up. I hope all of you are healthy and safe and taking care of one another. This is not a place in which to to talk about what's going on in the world, but it is a place, it is a community, and uh, I'm I'm quite happy that it's a community. And... uh, I just hope all of you are well, and um, we will somehow get through this one way or the other. We have to have hope. We have one another, right? So hold on to your loved ones and, uh, and weather the storm, and we will get through it. But, as I said, uh, okay... Let's let's turn our minds away from you know the the events of the day and uh, focus on on something else, something a little more pleasurable, something that has bl- brought a lot of joy to all of us uh, who love comics and who love cartoons. Let's focus on Lynn Johnston and the interview with Lynn. Uh, um, I think, I, like I said, uh, I don't want to be redundant, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. And uh, so let's get right to it, okay? Uh, Lynn Johnston and myself in conversation. One of the things about your work is that, uh, well, the physical aspect of your work is you're in Vancouver. You've been in Canada all these years, and your syndicate is located in Kansas City. Yeah. And so did you ever have any trouble in sending your strips um, from from wherever you were living at the time? I know you lived in Ontario and then you you moved west again. And but did you ever have any any like glitches where strips got lost in the mail or? Sure. Anything? Yeah. When, yeah. When we were sending hard copy. Yeah. I had a whole pile of stuff lost at one point. I had to redo a full week of strips. Oh. And I was grateful that it was just one week that was lost. But. You know, we'd have tracking numbers and everything, and you just assume that it's a an art fan that might have just wandered off with your week's work. But if that was the case, it was never published, so it was probably never of any value. But, oh <laughs> but you know, quickly, uh, you know, there was a system of being able to send everything by electronic mail, and so it was it was great for all of us. Yeah, I guess that sort of took hold in the mid-90s, right? Somewhere around there where you were able to start sending digital files. Yeah, it uh, changed everything. 
Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, it's certainly the convenience level and the timing level. But boy, uh, when you lost that week of strips, then you had to hustle to get everything together in a week again. I, I'm, yes. You must lose in your mind. Yeah, it was pretty tough. But then at the same time, every time you send out a package, you're, you say to yourself, I hope this gets there. <laughs> and you have to be slightly prepared for it not getting there and when i did lose that week i was living almost in the arctic it was uh, as far north as you could drive in manitoba canada in a little tiny mining town so the artwork had to go by gray goose bus line down to winnipeg and then on fedex or perlator from winnipeg to kansas city so wherever it was lost, it was <laughs> it was in that hop. I used to joke about sending stuff out by dog team, but it was pretty close. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When you were working, you said you lost a week. So fortunately, it was just a week. Usually sent out packages that were larger than that, I'm, I'm guessing, like four or five weeks. Oh, no, no, oh. never that much. I mean, you can't produce that much. Producing oh, okay. two weeks is a huge effort. Producing right. one week is sort of typical, but producing two weeks, it takes a couple of days to write two weeks. It takes mm -hmm. a couple of days to draw it up. And mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, it uh, takes some time to get it inked and then you've got to get it out there. So it takes it takes time to get to get the work out. It, it's it's not it's not fast. It's not easy. And I guess at the time we had more space, so there was more artwork. Maybe today when people are just drawing stick figures and hope that the dialogue will get them through. But uh, at the time, we, we cared about the art and the backgrounds and what the, uh, what the reader was seeing. Well, and as time went on, in For Better or For Worse, I, I think as you note in the comic art of Lynn Johnston, uh, the new book that's out, you, you you note that the work became more detailed and you became much more exacting in terms of what you were drawing for, like you would draw all the cans on the shelf in the grocery store or something like right. that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it must have taken you much longer then to prepare a week as, as time went on. It, did, was that the case? or No, no, I was, I'm fast. You have to be fast. <laughs> No, I am fast. I'm, on, I'm I'm very quick, and I get my work done quickly. It's just that the the inking is tiresome, and it takes time. And mm -hmm. uh, and my assistant, you know, it took her time. She was quick as well. But uh, it's 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 not an easy job. I keep wanting to tell people that they, you know, people assume that it's it's an easy job, but the the thought process that goes into it is really exhausting. I mean, there are times when you cannot think of one thing, nothing, and but you still have to dedicate your writing day to thinking whatever you can think, and you'll sit there and nothing will come. At least that happened to me for a full. 48 hours, there might be nothing. And then the next day, you'll think of two to three weeks and you'll say, where were you yesterday? Where were you the day before this, you know, magic bubble that, you know, descends yeah. and gifts itself <laughs> to you with this stuff? You know, you, there's this magic stuff that is not there from time to time. So you might lose three days of your week just trying to think of something. So oh, it's yeah. not an easy job. It isn't. Yeah, especially when you think about the number of years you put in. I mean, 30 years working on the comic strip like that. And, and uh, you know, it's one thing, as, as I was saying to a cartoonist a couple of weeks ago, it's one thing to do it for five years. It's another thing to do it for 30 years. And, and the idea is, you know, to keep pushing that creative mechanism within you, whatever it is. And then that's also responsive to 
you know, your creativity is responsive to your environment, right? To what's going on in your life, to what you ate that day, or whether you've got a headache or not. And, yeah. you know, uh, you, you get used to it. It's like any job that you get good at. I mean, if you're making leather straps, you're going to get pretty good at those leather straps by the time you've done it for 10 years, right? And so you're going to be a perfectionist and you're going to make it a better leather strap. And by the time you've done it for 30 years, people come to you and ask, how do you do this thing? So it's like any other job that you've done for a long time. You get a rhythm to it. You get a sense of what you can and cannot do. You know who can help you with it. You you know, and you're dedicated to a, a deadline, a timeline. So that's you know, that's uh, helpful, but it's also, uh, you know, it's like a big foot in your back at all times. So, yeah, um, what happened to me was that I perfected the characters to the point where uh, they were no longer easy to stretch and morph into comics. They were now very realistic. Once you give a character lips, <laughs> you can't, you, you know, it's no longer a cartoon. You can't yawn with the jaw to the floor anymore. It's got to be uh, human. And I was talking about, you know, knowing my anatomy well from being a medical artist. Well, eventually I just turned everything real and was so focused on anatomy that I really I really lost the comic characters altogether. But I was also losing my babies and puppies and all the things that made the strip fun and funny. I had too many characters and I was really I was ready to to let it go. Also, my marriage was a wreck. I I was having all kinds of trouble. And oh. um, I kept thinking, when the strip is finished, everything will be okay. So I, I really thought that by ending the strip and now becoming secondary and, and hidden away and no longer Lynn Johnston, that, that things would work for me, for, mm-hmm. for our marriage. But that was not the case. Oh, I'm sorry that I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Um, it, it the strip had autobiographical qualities to it. So, you know, as you were going through that, I suppose it must have been difficult to write it. Well, you do you do get into a zone of fantasy, and this was my fantasy world over which I had a hundred percent control, which was kind of nice, right? That yeah. I could, you know. People come and go and people change jobs and people are threatened and people cry and it's all I'm God. I you know, I make it happen on the page. But in your own life, of course, this is not, you know, it's nothing you, you personally can control. So I was in a way it was kind of nice to to fall into the the fantasy world of where everything I had control over. And we're actually pretty nice people in this family. We didn't uh, destroy each other over this uh, marriage breakdown. And I was able to, uh, even after the divorce, continue for a while um, as I added new material to the old strips as it was being rerun. I didn't want it to run exactly as it had run because I didn't think it was good enough. So once they said to me that they would like to run it a second time, I wanted to fix the first three years or so, <laughs> which I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. I added lots of new material and it was really kind of exciting and kind of fun and I kept it alive. But I also had to write about a marriage that was working when mine really had broken down. Yeah. And and I I, I don't want to touch on uh, a sore spot, but it must have felt somewhat there must have been a sense of melancholy in reliving some of what you were going through as you were reworking the strip and, and dealing with Ellie and John. and Sure. Yeah, you know, I can imagine that would have been a very personal thing. Uh, But it was also helpful, you know, it was, it was, uh 
healing and, maybe in a way too. Yeah, well, you know, you you always you're in love with the person you marry, right? And a marriage lasts for as long as the two of you can make it work. And uh, at first, everything's fine, right? So I was able to go back to the everything's fine stage. And it's great that there's a record of it in the comic strip, you know, in a way. For better or for worse, one of the things I just love about it is how organic it is and how natural it feels. And, and every aspect of it, the development, all the characters and the life and everything, it just feels so... And I suppose that has to do with the fact that the characters age in time. But it's also in the way that you write them and in the way that you care for them. I really get the sense as I read the strip that you really loved the Pattersons. You really loved Ellie and John and and Michael and April and Elizabeth. I mean, there's this sense of that warmth that you have for the characters too. And I think that's one of the things that makes it feel so uh, universal to the reader and, and brings us in and, and, and makes it so tangible, you know, to us as readers. Um, you know, it really was based on real stuff, real people. It really was. Yeah, you know, yeah. Friends from my past and friends in the neighborhood and my family and my extended family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you can't write about what you don't know. I mean, I never would have been able to write about um, working on a farm if I hadn't worked on my sister and brother-in-law's farm. And uh, that was fabulous uh, education. I mean, boy, what a respect I have for farmers. And uh and, uh, you know, even in the worst of times, there's some wonderful humor that keeps everybody going uh, out there on the farm, you know. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I really, I really had some great uh, uh, adventures that helped to, uh, to connect me to real life situations. And it was far more interesting if I changed the characters, locations, uh, introduced new uh, neighbors, brought in family members that were new and I had to learn how to draw them over and over again. I mean, I really got bored fast. So I, I entertained myself by switching things up often. Yes. Yeah. And well, and, and it just, and it's also, that's the way life is, you know, right? yeah. and that's how the, yeah. uh, for better, or for worse feels it, uh, the changes feel natural. They don't feel imposed. And I think that's one of the things that's hard to do. It's really easy to contrive a situation and put your characters into that and and it, but it reads as contrived and that never happened in for better or for worse it always feels very natural and organic uh, as though it's happening you know as life happens and i think that's kind of a magic quality um that's not easily put into bottle and onto the comics page well, who, who have characters that don't change. You know, there are many characters that don't change. Uh, they, they work with writers, and that's a fabulous relationship. I mean, if you can work with a good writer that loves your characters, I mean, it really is a love affair. You know, you know the characters well enough to know what they would and wouldn't do. And so I have no qualms at all about working with writers if you have characters that stay the same, because after a while, you really do need some input. I think the only person I know who, uh, there are probably many more, but I know that Charles Schultz never worked with writers. He was always uh, very proud of the fact that he came up with all his own material all the time. Yeah, in fact, from what I've read, he rejected ideas that came from family members or from letters or from other people. They'd say, here's an idea that's a good one. He might think it was a good idea, but he wouldn't touch it because that's he didn't come up with it. 
In fact, I have a story for you. Um, one time, I mean, we used to call each other every so often. We were quite good friends. And uh, he called me one day and said, I can't think of a single thing. My brain is blank. I got my deadline, uh, you know, and, and how are you today kind of thing. And, and uh, he said, I'm up and down and up and down. He said, I'm on the bungee cord of life. And I said, Sparky, that's a, that's a daily right there, bungee cord of life. And he said, well, you came up with that. I said, no, I didn't. You did. Anyways, he said, no, 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 I'm not going to use that. And a while later, he called me up again. Oh, I'm one of these things. Well, I can't think of anything today. And I said, what about bungee cord of life? And he said, you came up with that. I said, absolutely not. And I gave him the conversation over again. So he used it. And he said, he sent me the original with a note. And uh, I thought that was great fun. But it certainly made it clear to me that he didn't use anybody else's ideas. I had to convince him it was his. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that that is something for sure because uh but you know he had that sense of pride so so tell me w what was your relationship with charles schultz like well everybody needs a mentor everybody needs somebody whose approval that they work for and uh he was he was my approval guy i mean i also wanted to work for the approval of lee who was my editor and sue who was my other editor at the syndicate but I will always used to secretly say to myself, I hope Sparky likes this one, right? <laughs> and uh, I, d I did work for his approval. I really wanted him to call me up and say that was a good one. He always liked the ones I did with the dog. Well, and, and I guess the story that is out in the world that I've heard before is that he was very upset when Farley passed away. <laughs> Well, to the point where he said to me, if you have, if you, you know, kill off that dog, I'm going to have Snoopy hit by a truck and he's going to be in a hospital and everybody will care about Snoopy and nobody will care about your dumb story, he said. <laughs> and uh, he was quite angry. And so I didn't tell him when I was going to do this because I knew he would bark at me. So uh, I wrote the story and I cleared it with my editors and I sent it out and it ran and he was kind of blindsided by it. And he called me up. And he said, that stupid little girl, that stupid April, what in the world was she doing going down to the creek? Where were her parents? What is going on? How that stupid little girl? And I was shocked that he would he would see it as 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 a, a window into a real world. And I knew that it was a story. But he, when he said April was to blame that stupid little girl, uh, I I was shocked. I was surprised. It was a, a different uh, response altogether than I expected. And and did he eventually come to terms with it? Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, these uh, it's our it's our job. So you can't tell anybody how to run their, you know, how to do their job. You uh, you know, you, your colleagues, but you you don't you know it's it's not considered proper to criticize other people's work and so uh yeah of course everything was fine but my characters grew and changed so i had no choice you either do the thing right or you don't do it at all i could have had the oldest dog on the planet and that would have made readers wonder about my credibility mm -hmm. you know I, I i think about um farley and and all of the dogs in the in the strip but farley was in particular a very popular character and and you know quite rightly i mean when you when you follow farley around the strip he's just he's just this happy go lucky lumbering kind of beautiful spirit that that you know pervades the strip 
I can see Charles Schultz seeing in Farley maybe the dog he might have wanted to have done but never did, you know, the real the real dog. Because, you, you know, Farley is a real dog. He's not uh, a Snoopy. He's not a thinking, uh, speaking dog like, you know, the, the anthropomorphic dogs in so many different comics. And uh, so maybe in a way he he felt a certain sense of, I don't know, I don't want to say ownership, but, but a sense of connection to Farley. Uh, I don't think so. I really, no. oh no, he loved Snoopy. He loved the magic of Snoopy. And in a way he was Snoopy. You know, he could be magical just by the things that he could do. You know, he he mm-hmm. had a skating rink and uh, he was involved with uh, community events and things like that. And if he wanted to see something happen, he could make it happen. But Snoopy was absolutely magical. And he 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 identified with that character to a great degree but he was he loved his dog he had a a real uh, little terrier dog that he just absolutely adored and when that dog ran away it just broke his heart so he he loved real animals but he I don't think he ever looked at anybody else's work and wished that that he had done something similar or I mean we all just appreciated each other where our work is all separate we you know none of us really uh took anything from anybody else other than uh, the joy of being in the same industry. Um, no, I, I, I don't, I think he, he liked my drawing and he often said that he liked my drawing and he particularly liked that character. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just thinking he was a, a fan of for better or for worse though. I mean, even if he didn't know you, I think he, he was a fan of the strip. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. I mean, that must be, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that's just a great accolade, you know, nothing's better than that, really. Well, you, you really want your contemporaries to to feel that you are part of the team, you know, that you're you're one of them. So, yeah, it was great fun. It was fun to know him and to know so many of the other people, Mad Magazine and uh, people who work for Disney. I mean, the connections that you make through the uh, National Cartoonist Society are just fabulous. I mean, just friends for life. I've known these people for 40 years now, and uh, we've watched our kids grow up and we visited each other. And it's just been a joy. Seems like a wonderful organization, and it's great. Uh, and and you do read all these wonderful stories. Uh, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago by uh, the son of John Cullen Murphy, and yeah, uh, yeah called Cartoon County, which uh, sort of it was about cartoonists living in Connecticut and how they were all connected. You know, uh, right. John Cullen Murphy and Mort Walker and and the Walker family uh, and other cartoonists as well. Anyway, it was a lovely book, and you do, really do get a sense of community. Uh, that there is a shared uh, connection between all cartoonists, as isolated as they are in their working. Well, I sat next to John Cullen Murphy at a dinner one time, and uh, I looked at him and I said, John, are are you Prince Valiant? And he looked at me with this dreamy expression and he said, oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to be the character in order to breathe life into the character. So, uh, yeah, you become the character that you uh, that you work with. Do you do you feel that way about all of your characters? That there's, there's a piece of you in each of those characters? Absolutely. There has to be no question. Even the pets. 
<laughs> yeah, well, and and even the pets. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sure, yeah, you, got catching, you feel the itch <laughs> oh my gosh so and and ellie in particular uh, i love ellie i mean she i think of all the characters in the strip she's got to be my favorite character and and uh, she holds the strip together but um how did it feel to let them all go then at the end um it, it was a huge relief it was uh-huh. a relief. i wanted it to end because i knew i knew i couldn't I couldn't continue it. I couldn't make it better than it was. It was at, I think, I was at the top of my game, and I think it's better to let something go when you know that you've told the story rather than to sort of drag it on and drag it on. And if you're not happy with it and if if you feel like you're dragging it on, then it's going to be evident in the work you do. So I stopped at the right time, and it was a relief. Gary Trudeau took vacations, you know, took time away from the strip for a couple of years, and then came back to it. Berkeley Brethren did the same thing. Do you think that that would have worked for you? Because you never did that. But I mean, no. do you think that it wasn't the right thing for you, that kind of thing? No, it wasn't the right thing. Uh, I've thought about it. Physically, I can't do it. I think I told you I have a growth in my right eye and I have um, what's called a central tremor in my hand. So there are times when my right hand shakes so much that, you know, I can't even write a letter. So uh, physically, it, it would be daunting. Even with uh, the help with a, from a writer, it would it would be daunting. But the one thing that has been presented to me recently is the possibility of doing a live action show so i've i've met with writers we've talked about it um you you need the right people who who actually have a comic uh, outlook you know somebody who does stand-up comedy could write a comic strip because they have that kind of twisted look on life right yeah so yeah, so I'm working with people to to find the right team, and if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, uh, that's great too. If it doesn't happen, it'll be a relief. <laughs> if, <laughs> if it does happen, it'll be a huge amount of work, but it has to start out fun, or or you shouldn't do it. But and this is retirement for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Is, yeah. Right. So you're you're busy all more. You're just as busy now as you were then almost. Um, so oh. would this be the Canadian national, the Canadian broadcasting company, the people who do like Murdoch mysteries and things like that? Yeah, yeah I think they would be the first ones that we would approach. And uh, we, you know, it, it's 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 a work in process just to get a pitch ready. Yeah. So um, uh, we've. We've created one and uh, dissolved that one, and we're in the process of creating a second one, and uh, that may well be ready to go uh, within the next uh, six, eight months. Wow, that's fantastic. I feel like I just got a scoop. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> well, you know, be careful what you're digging into when you think you've got a scoop, right? <laughs> <I know. laughs> so uh, it, it reminds me now of the animated uh shows which how many of those did you do like five or six of those shows there's about 20 i guess all together oh, really? are there that many well we did one i mean they're all canadian animation studios and animation studios uh die very easily it's a hugely expensive project and if you you know if you get too fancy a studio and take your family to the Cannes Film Festival and buy yourself a couple of fancy cars and don't put the money into the shows, (laughs) you know, uh, eventually you say what happened as the creditors come in, right? So every animation studio I've worked with in Canada has gone belly up for one reason or another. 
And uh, and so I did one show with one company, uh, eight shows with another company, 16 shows with another company. And uh, all three companies went went belly up. But it was not an easy process. It's it, And because of the uh, financial crunch, uh, you know, you can run out of money pretty quickly, but you still have so many shows to deliver. And the quality gets worse and worse as the money dries up. So eventually you're turning out horrible stuff. And that old joke, uh, fix it in post, you know, in, in the post-production, you can add um, sound effects, perhaps, or maybe uh, edit things differently. I mean, but you can only fix so much in post. So fix it and post became you know i get out my Kleenex and cry when i heard about that you know oh. <laughs> so from, from what i understand from the book when you prepared for the animated work at first anyway you had you went through this whole process of working out the architecture of the house oh, yeah. and and nailing down all of the details and whatnot so it had an impact on the strip it did oh yeah i mean once once you're actually creating imagery for uh, artists to work with they have to know if you when you go in the front door do you turn right to go to the kitchen do you, or you do you turn left and how long is a hallway and what's out the back door and stuff that was almost all fantasy i mean it was real to a certain extent because it was based on real houses but i added rooms and just you know subtracted rooms and if you look at things like um i think family circus if bill wanted a a kitchen on the right it was on the right if he wanted it you uh, on the left it was on the left and i think you know, it wasn't a consistent illustration because it was done to suit the joke as a single panel gag. But my, you know, my characters would walk from room to room. So I, I did know, you know, where the stairwells were and, and what the wallpaper was like. But really, when you do animation, you need an aerial view. You need to be able to see the community. You you need to float up above everything and see where the, the road goes. And do you turn right at the end of the road to go to town or left? I mean, it that it's that exact. So there was a huge amount of research done just to get uh, the neighborhood right and where the fences were, where the neighbors were and what shape the houses were. And it's a huge process. And I loved the artists I worked with. I mean, they were just genius. I just loved them. I loved the writers. I loved the artists. I loved the photographers and the musicians and the people who did the voices. It was a joy to work with all of them. It was oh, the actually the companies themselves that fell out of the sky. You know, it was, it's just too expensive. It's too yeah. expensive. Yeah. At, at least certainly in, in those days it was, I, I don't know about now, um, but you know, so, so much of it is farmed out of, uh, you know, the, the Western hemisphere and sent over to Korea to, to be exactly. worked on well, other places. Yeah. That's what happened to us. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, sure. They would send things to Korea or or uh, the Philippines or to India. And if the storyboard was wrong, the animators in India would animate incorrectly. And I would be fixing the storyboard, not knowing they had sent it already. And it was already being animated and it was already wrong. Well, oh, how do you fix that in post? You know, and yeah, so there were endless problems because you're farming things out. And in fact, the only way to stay alive as a small animation studio is to accept stuff that's farmed out. So you'll get 10 scenes from, I don't know, Hanna-Barbera or something. I mean, you'll, you know, you take piecework so that you can keep your artists and staff working and you keep money coming into the company. 
you know, it's awfully hard for animators to get a full-time job anywhere. I mean, yeah. if you if you want to work in serious animation, sometimes you just got to travel all the time. Wow. So it sounds to me like, although the creative process was great, but uh, it sounds like the frustrations were obviously there in the business. And uh, it would be yeah. n- not something you want to get back involved with. <laughs> no, I don't. And that's why any live action, any discussion of it, I am I'm looking at very carefully and very skeptically. And, and uh, you know, somebody once told me, uh, this was a, an offer in Los Angeles. Every time I got an offer to do live action or series or something in, in California, it was, well, you got to move everybody to the States, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's a Canadian show. So, you know, that uh, we never, we never did uh, handle it that way. But it was evident to me that uh, it was always going to be a really big project with uh, diverse people and uh, it was it was never going to be easy so, so yeah so you worked on the storyboards for the animated shows did you did you do a number of those did you do all of those were you well, doing the storyboards them? are done by other artists I mean there oh. is so much work to do it's yeah. and I was working on the strip as well so there is an enormous amount of work to do. And some people are just storyboard artists. I have a friend who teaches storyboard. It's a it's a skill unto itself. It's, it's setting up all the scenes, all the p- camera positions, everything. And it's done by people who do this for a living. And sometimes they misinterpret the script or, or they have a view of something that isn't quite right. And you need, and here's an example. I have a bunch of kids in a school bus. The kids in the very back of the bus are shouting forward at the kids at the front of the bus. Well, if in the storyboard, the storyboard artist makes a mistake and shows the kids answering facing forward, the people in the front of the bus would be answering facing backwards, right? They turn right. around and shout back. Well, in the storyboard, if the artist makes a mistake and has the kids shouting forward, that has to be changed. In fact, the whole perspective has to be changed from the backs of the heads of the kids at the back of the bus and the kids at the front of the bus turning around and shouting back to them. So if that's already being animated in India, what oh. the heck do you do? Yeah. It's yeah, you're wrong. And so do you cut the scene out? But it's an important scene because they're saying important things. So, so do you suddenly show a picture of the bus and just the voiceover as the bus is rattling down the road? Well, maybe except that they didn't want to show the background going by because it was expensive to do a long background to show the bus rattling down the road. So, wah! <laughs> <laughs> One problem leads to 15 One, other problems. Or, or a really crappy show. And it, we ended up doing some pretty crappy shows. And, and you know, you don't want to apologize for your work. And, and people who see the work and, and, and know that it's crappy, they say, well, Lynn Johnston produced a crappy show. But it's... It's not just one person, right? It's just a whole bunch of circumstances. So anything that gets done, which is great and beautiful, you have to say that's an exception. That's Pixar and, you know, all some of these wonderful big studios that can afford to do the best with the best people and keep them fully employed uh, on an annual basis, which is hard for small studios to do. Boy, we're way off on a tangent here. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we, we are, we are. But it's it's interesting because I don't think people, uh, you know, comics fans are that cognizant of your work in animation and and uh, the story behind it. So I think it's it's interesting information, and I think uh, very worth talking about. So I'm I'm glad we we went that way. But okay, so let's get back to comics and and to the comic strip itself. Uh, there are a couple of things I still want to touch on, in particular. Through the course of 30 years, you had a number of storylines that had a huge impact on your audience and were very well, I don't want to say they were publicized, they weren't, but they were well known uh, and had an impact in the media and in the culture. Um, And in particular, you know, I'm thinking first of Farley passing which had a huge impact and uh, as you've noted and and others have noted um, I think it's probably the one thing that really stands out to people most when they think about for better or for worse Farley's passing is probably the the major thing that hits them for because we love our pets and and, well here's uh, here's what happened at the time Um, when you send work out to the syndicate it's six to eight weeks in advance right of the publication mm -hmm. date and you don't know what the headlines in the newspaper are going to be on that on a day, any given day, right? So, right. I mean, the headline can be set, but if a bridge collapses in the middle of the night, they're changing the headlines immediately. So um, when Farley died, uh, it was the exact time of the Oklahoma bombing. So nobody wanted to see anything negative anywhere. People turned to the comics page for a smile or a laugh or, you know, just to relax. And the story, which I had sent into the syndicate six weeks in advance or maybe more, uh, it was set to run and it it ran because that's what, you know, that's what packages of uh, comics do. And they are sent to the newspapers and the editors don't change the comics page because it's the one page they don't have to worry about. Every other page changes with the headlines. You know, if you put a brand new headline on the front page, every other big article has to be juggled all the way through the paper until it's, uh, you know, so it's a huge job, even with electronic uh, help now. But in at one time, and of course, when I first started, they'd have to reset uh, metal type and things like that so the uh the page was set they couldn't change it the story ran and it was a devastating story because people were crying in the subways you know as they read the comics and it was it was awful and at the same time we were a, a child had died in a flood in edmonton because they had gone down to, behind their house to when a river had overflowed and this little kid died in this flood and um, the story was used in Edmonton to keep kids out of the rivers and canals as the you know the spring runoff happened or whenever it was I can't remember when the Oklahoma bomb, bombing happened which maybe is a good thing anyways this horrible event happened at the same time and um, that's one of the reasons why the death of Farley was such a, a troublesome story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the it coinciding with another terrible tragedy. Well, with it, a terrible tragedy, yeah. Really uh, but, and but I mean, uh, the death of the dog wasn't a tragedy. It was right, right. He died a hero and all that kind of thing. And and pets pass away; they have a lifespan of you know only so yeah. many years. But for it to happen at, at the time of a, a real horror, horrific tragedy, yeah. it you know it it really was a difficult time for everybody. 
Farley was such a, a beloved animal, beloved dog. And, and it's funny, as we're talking about him, I feel like he's real. And, and <laughs> you, know, you know, that's an odd thing to say, but it's true. And when Farley passed away, it broke my heart. And whenever I go back to that story and read it now, it still breaks my heart. But, you know, you, you such a beautiful, I mean, uh, spirit and, and what he did, you know, his, well, his passing. I, I, mean, so I can bring him back to life again pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody could, you could. <laughs> I mean, pen and pencil, and uh, he's yeah. he's barking again. So the the you know uh, among the other storylines that stands out, of course, is Lawrence's uh, coming out. Michael's friend Lawrence. You know, today looking back on it, it's amazing, really, how how resonant that story is today, you know, because I think we're in a different time, a different world, uh, a more accepting uh, period of time, at least we hope it is. And, and that particular story came out in a time when it was still controversial and, you know, still something that people didn't talk a lot about, you know, coming out stories. And, and there's a whole population who had blinders on in regard to these issues. And so that was a brave thing to do. And I, and, uh, I, I think it had a huge impact as well. I didn't the- think it was a brave thing to do at the time. I thought it was an essential thing to do at the time. Uh-huh. If I was writing about real people in a real community, it was part of the real community. And certainly it was part of my life. My brother-in-law was gay, and of course, as an artist, you grow up, go to art school, and you're involved in the theater and music and dance and all those things. And so many people are, I mean, we're all a mix, aren't we? We're, <laughs> we're, we're all sort of, uh, I don't know, we're all a mix. And so um, when a friend of mine was murdered uh, for his bicycle and his stereo, uh, I decided that I was going to write this story. And it was written for my friend Michael, who the character is named for. And uh, he was a Toronto um, comedy. uh, He was a stand-up comedian. And he was a comedy writer for the CBC, which is a Canadian broadcast uh, association. And um, he he had... uh, you know, he he was a single fellow and busy in the theater and busy writing and had all kinds of uh, friends. And he was out and about and he met this young man who was uh, homeless at the time. And Michael gave him 40 bucks. And he said, uh, he said, there's a, a shelter down the street. You can get yourself a meal and, and get yourself a night there for this. So get yourself something to eat and, and get yourself there. You can have a shower. Well, the kid followed Michael home and um, he went bought himself a knife with the 40 bucks and uh, knocked on Michael's door. And um, when Michael opened the door, he slit his throat. Oh and he, he took his bicycle and his stereo and he was gone. And um, when he was finally found, uh, the, uh, the authorities seemed to be on his side, on the side of the young man who'd committed the murder because he was a homeless youth and all of this kind of thing. And poor Poor, poor young man who had, uh, and they, the attitude was, well, there's another predator off the street. But oh. Michael, he wasn't a predator. He was, he was tiny, slender young guy, you know, and, and he played the part of Peter Pan because they could lift him up on a, a wire and swing him around the theater. I mean, he was... He wasn't the type of person you'd consider a predator. And he was a stand-up comic, for heaven's sakes. I mean, he was goofy and loving and personable. And for him to be murdered like this was just unbelievably unfair and shocking for me. And I thought, Michael, this is a story for you. I've known you since we were 13 years old, listening to the 
you, you know, listening to the goon show on records at your house. I mean, we were, you know, we grew grown up together. And so I did this story for him. Yeah. And, it, and it's a beautiful story and uh, it's a beautiful tribute to your friend in the end, you know. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, one of the things I note is that you didn't think it was brave, but I think that that's the hallmark of, of courage really is, is that the person who, who shows the most courage is the person who doesn't think anything about it. And, uh, but I think other cartoonists in this situation, yeah, what happened afterwards as the story ran, I mean, if people are going to be angry with you, uh, you know, if, if you do a movie, they'll be angry with you for that day because the movie is over and they're mad. Or they might be angry with you for a few days afterwards. But if you're doing a comic strip, they're angry with you every day for as long as that comic strip runs. And so we got, we got about 3,000 letters from people. And in that 3,000 letters, 70% were positive. But the negative ones were terrifying. And they were from people who didn't know who I was, didn't know what I did. They were told to write because they were part of a religious group or part of a very negative group. And it was it was quite terrifying. And I, I heard from editors from newspapers all over North America from seven in the morning till 11 at night every single day. And I answered all the calls and I answered all the letters, anything that was anything that was reasonable, I answered, even the negative ones. If somebody had a, a really good point, you wanted to let them know you read them, heard them and were responding. Right. And so I was responsible all the way through this. And the people who were most interesting to listen to were editors from really small towns in the United States who, as an open minded editor, they believed they should run the story. But these people were personally attacked in their hometown. You know, a small hometown where the editor is going to be at the local coffee shop or at the theater or taking his kids to school. You know, these editors were were attacked and they would call me and say, you have no idea what my life is like. And I'm going to have to stop running the strip because my dog was spray painted. My house was egged. My children were attacked at school. This was really something I it was unprecedented in my opinion. I had no idea that these editors would be attacked. Oh my gosh! Uh, I, nor would I. I, w- I would. You. Would, those. The, those are the kinds of you know consequences that one. I mean, making your comic strip in your studio and and doing what you think is is absolutely right and whatnot. You have no idea how. I mean, my gosh, to to think that it would have those kinds of consequences with sure. small town editors, and then you know, it just horrifies me to think that people would would go to those kind of lengths, whether you're upset or not, there are other ways to express your dissatisfaction with something. And that's the, those are the most terrible kinds of, of actions. Uh, I I feel they don't know and don't understand. Right. You know, and fear makes you do a lot of really things that you normally wouldn't do, I would think, but I, you know, it was fear and anger and, uh, upset, but for for every negative thing that happened, the positive was overwhelmingly good. And I would lie awake at night thinking, "Why did I do this? Why did I do this?" You know. But then you'd get a letter from somebody who said, "I haven't spoken to my mother for three years, and today, you know, we you know hugged for the first time and talked, and you know, it was it was wonderful." I heard from parents and kids and teachers and, and religious leaders. And it was, it was a real event. 
it it really was and i think it moved a lot of uh, a lot of people despite the, some of the negative responses i think in general you know it was a remarkable event actually because it was all over the news and and i think it's it's part of you know a kind of civil rights movement that has led us to the place where we are today where you know we can speak uh, openly uh, about same sex marriage and and all of that it's we've come a long way we still have a long way to go in many respects but uh, I think what you did is certainly part of that movement and and, uh, and contributed to it. It's forward progress, and I think that's that's something to be proud of. And it's not something that every cartoonist gets a chance to do, nor would have the the you know the guts to do. And uh, so, you can only do it with a realistic strip, right? I mean, yeah. but something that you've got uh, dogs that are talking to other dogs. <laughs> well, the cool thing about a dog strip is that you can have a small dog and a big fat dog and a long skinny dog, all, all different colors, and they all get along just great, you know. <laughs> but we people are a lot more complicated. So yeah. yeah, if you're doing a realistic strip, you can do realistic stories. Yeah, absolutely, and and it impacts people in a real real way. I was I was thinking about Elizabeth's. Uh, your character Elizabeth's ordeal with sexual assault and the trial that ensued afterwards that ran in the strip and and it's interesting to think back on that now because in the moment we are in now Harvey Weinstein was just convicted of sexual assault and rape and and um, uh, I don't know all of the the charges that are against him but he deserves whatever he gets and uh, I just think it's it's interesting to think about that, how timely that story is and how resonant that story remains here today where we're in the aftermath or living through the, the moment of the, the Me Too movement. Well, it seemed like, for me, it seemed like a good story to do because it was realistic and she was in a situation where she was vulnerable. If there was somebody in that building who was going to uh, threaten her, it was a situation that sort of developed as I wrote this just the story of Elizabeth working at this uh, at this garden center so um, I, th I don't think there's a woman on the planet who has not been threatened at one point in, in time I mean certainly you know we're we're vulnerable and uh, I felt threatened and uh, although nothing happened because of course good old Anthony with his white hat and his uh, charging stallion comes leaping to the rescue and uh, and she, <laughs> you know, she's she's uh, OK. But, uh, you know, again, it's a realistic part of life that uh, I wanted to explore as well. But again, you know, I was getting to the stage where it was at the end of my uh, comic art career in the, in the comics. And um, I was getting so that I was wondering how many of these realistic stories am I going to tell? And is this still a comic strip or is this a, a saga? Am I turning it into a drama now? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do that. I still wanted the comedy. And um, I'd, I'd sort of written myself out of it because I no longer had puppies and little babies. And the babies that were there now had lips. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it's really, you know, like your your drawing is your signature, and so if you draw a baby a certain way, it's all all the babies are going to look alike. So uh, I changed them, you know, not just hair and and, but I had to I had to make some facial change. So again, you get the kids' eyebrows and eyelids and lips, you you know, you're doomed. It's, it becomes realistic. And and the stories became more realistic too. But I do think, uh, and you know, again, I I know I sound like a fan, but I am a fan, and and so I I just still 
think in looking back the strip that you did find a way all the way through the strip to interject that humor and and even while the you know the drama was becoming more pervasive and and the realistic uh, aspects of the strip became more prevalent. At the same time, you found the humor in it all. And I think that's a, a saving grace because it's hard to go through life. And, it, you know, people can go through life and through the, all of the drama and whatnot and come out having lost that that really essential spark of life. But I think you found a way throughout the whole run of the strip to keep that humor alive. Well, you can't survive without humor. I mean, I don't know how many. I've been to funerals where people have been laughing, and it's a relief, and it's a joy to be able to see something funny in the middle of something awful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's so much wonderful humor that has come out of really unpleasant situations. I mean, the First Nations people here in Canada are some of the funniest funniest, outrageously funny people. And a lot of it, I'm sure, is because they felt <laughs> that the life around them hasn't been so great from time to time, you know, or for a lot of time. But there are a lot of people who, who see humor in, in life to the point where it just becomes, it becomes food and water. It really does. Absolutely. You know, you, you can't, I mean, you, if you succumb to every awful thing or pressure that, that you encounter in life uh, and without good humor you've got no real response it helps you survive those things and and that's uh, it's just one of those essential attributes of being human uh, is to be able to find the humor in in those kinds of situations those difficulties so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you know your strip is one of those strips again where the cast just grows and grows and the characters age in time and and it reminds me of of a contemporary of yours, really, and that's the work of Gary Trudeau and and Doonesbury, and that's the only other strip right right off the top of my head, and there may be others, um, but it's the only one that, that I think of at the moment that came out after 1970. Uh, obviously, Gasoline Alley beforehand had age characters who aged, but. Doonesbury shares something with you in that the characters do age, although not in real time, uh, but they do age. And there is this growing cast of characters. What did you think of, of Doonesbury? Did, did you read Doonesbury? Were there... Absolutely. Oh, no, I, I read Doonesbury. And uh, what captivated me was um, his political savvy, not only his courage, but uh, you re in order to do a political cartoon, you really have to know your stuff. And you also have to be prepared to defend what you what you mm -hmm. create and in your points of view no i was i've always been impressed by gary's work and uh, he works again with an artist the way i did and together they produce some incredibly worthy material that sees the world from you know a, a totally point a different point of view that draws you in it's not just a single panel it draws you into dialogue and it draws you into situations and i think it's uh, wonderfully wonderfully well done very very clever but smart and i could never do editorial cartoons because i don't i'm not that politically savvy i i don't know the politicians inside and out and i don't have uh i don't have the thick skin that is required i have a friend who's a political cartoonist and she called me one day and said lynn lynn i've just had my first death threat and i thought really <laughs> that would not oh be that would not make me happy 
No, uh, but it's it's interesting to the politics of Doonesbury. I mean, obviously, Canada is our so our very close neighbor, and and you're aware of what goes on in the United States. Uh, you know, simply out of proximity, but but and we share a lot in terms of culture. But uh, you know, there's a lot about about the politics of this country uh, about the United States that play out in Doonesbury. And were there, did those resonate reading it in Canada? Sure. You know, uh, especially the uh, the at the time when he was talking about the Vietnam War and the people who, you know, had uh, had uh, come back and were exonerated and all of that type of thing, because this was my area. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of people, including my editor, in fact, who uh, moved to Canada because they were conscientious objectors or or they had been sent to Vietnam more than once and were not prepared to go back again. And uh, and so, yeah, that was all that was all wonderfully interesting because it was from the American point of view. We, we lived, uh, you know, at the other point of view saying, come on up here if you want to get away from it. And, <laughs> and they did. So I, I've always enjoyed his work. I, I like the characters and I like the, the straightforwardness, but I also love the irony. irony and I, uh, you know, yeah, he does do a strip that, that grows and changes. But Luann has grown and changed oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and Zitz has grown and changed. And I remember, uh, you know, Jim Borgman talking about, you know, should the kids actually be able to drive that old van that they're fixing up? But that means they'd have to get driver's licenses, which means they'd have to grow up. So uh, yeah, making a change like that does add an awful lot of um, uh, material to your work if you if you can have the characters grow and change. I mean, a lot of characters can't grow and change. Garfield, for example, has to stay the same. And, you know, and Mutz, I would think, uh, stays the same. But these are charming and wonderful characters, and you create things around them as you, you know. I mean, this is where the comic mind has to be pretty exceptionally sharp. And uh, occasionally you work with writers, and occasionally you sit there and scratch your head and wonder why you ever got into it. But it's, uh, you know, those of us who've made it have a lot of respect for each other. Sure, because it's, first of all, it's a, it's a rare group. And then and secondly, in order to get there, you, you have to obviously have a, a level of skill, you know, a skill set that is at a certain level. And uh, and so, you know, that is a rarefied group. But um, so you've mentioned a couple of different strips. Those are m- among the favorites you have of, of contemporary cartoonists or your own contemporaries. Oh, Zitz, we'll, we'll know each other, right? I mean, we, we yeah. all know each other. We get together once a year or sometimes we'll go visit each other. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone down and visited Greg Evans and stayed at his house and have known his huh? kids since they were little and that type of thing. And Jim Borgman is one of my favorite editorial cartoonists and his, uh, you know, the work that he does on Zitz is just fabulous. Mike Peters is a great friend. I love Kathy Geiswhite. I mean, there's just people all over the States and Canada have become part of my extended family just because we do this kind of work. So uh, you mentioned Kathy Geiswhite. Let's talk about her a little bit. Um, she sort of broke the ground for uh, women cartoonists, syndicated cartoonists in, in the early 70s. Did you interact with her in any way? Oh, sure. I mean, Kathy broke the ground for me. Um, Universal Press was looking for another woman cartoonist to do uh, stories about family life from a woman's point of view. You know, to, uh, mo- all the other strips were done by men. And I... 
even though some of them worked at home and probably did some vacuuming, they still kind of enjoy the fact that dinner's on at six and the kids are washed and in bed to kiss goodnight, right? You know, <laughs> so uh, a lot of the guys are not really in the trenches. And so when they're writing about family life, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't come from the same source. Right. So um, they were actively looking for somebody uh, who would do the type of work I did. And they saw that in the books that they received. And when they offered me the contract, um, I was actually given Kathy Guy's White's home phone number and uh, with her approval. And we talked quite a bit on the phone. And she was wonderful because I had no idea how to do this. I had done single panel gags and I had drawn all kinds of different characters. But to do something 365 days and, and something that was consistent, consistent characters and, and storylines or gags, I was lost. I had no idea. So Kathy was great. And uh, she told me, write the way you would write uh, a short play, like write out the dialogue first and, and time it out in your head or but always do the writing first. And that worked for me because Kathy was a writer primarily. She, her dad was in advertising and she had written for greeting cards and commercials. And I mean, she was a writer number one and she found it really difficult to do the drawing i was the other way around i i could do the drawing but i it was writing was a challenge for me so uh talking to Kath, kathy was absolutely essential and uh i'm so grateful to her for for all the help she provided and her strip is quite different from yours i mean uh you, you know the story about kathy and and uh her foibles and uh, the issues that women faced in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, it was it was very different in its approach, I think, than than your strip. Um, did you uh, bounce off of that, or did you get inspiration from what she was doing? Uh, what I what I got from Kathy was uh, friendship. I mean, mm. again, you know, when you are in this business, everybody's work is their signature. Everybody's work is their voice and you get to know a lot about them just by the work that they do and uh, sometimes it's surprising sometimes they are not the character that they uh, uh, that they draw maybe they get all of that out on the paper and then they are free to be themselves at home <laughs> but um, you know Sparky Schultz used to say if you want to know who I am read my work and he literally was all of those characters you know he was as magical as Snoopy and as cranky as Lucy and you know and and as uh, introspective as Linus I mean you know he was all the and and he was a loser who, who always wanted to be liked like Charlie Browning and so we are all all of us are characters and and Kathy is a beautiful slender woman who always thought she was fat you know and and worried about it and uh, I have friends who won't go shopping with her because it takes her so long to decide what she's going to wear <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean there's a real affection amongst us we are an understanding and affection and um, and of course I've known many of these people for over 40 years now which is a lifetime right two lifetimes yeah and and develop some deep friendships one of the things that, that struck me uh, in in reading the comic art of Lynn Johnston, that book that I keep mentioning that's come out in, in concert with the uh, retrospective exhibition, is I think you mentioned in the book that when uh, Charles Schultz passed away, that in some ways uh, that had a, a big impact on you and on your strip in a way, that somehow without him there, 
um, maybe the motivation wasn't as great or something along those lines. It seemed like you were deeply affected. I was. I mean, we all were, really, because mm-hmm. he died. I mean, he was 77 when he died, and I'm 72 now. Wow. And, yeah, both my mom and dad died at the age of 72. So when I turn 73 this year, it's going to be kind of a, a good thing because then I've escaped that dark cloud. But the next dark cloud is when I hit 77, should I get there, because he died at 77, and he was angry about it. What? How can this be happening to me? I'm still working. I'm, you know, I've got a good life. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Really? I'm yeah. About it. He was one of those people I'd thought, you know, obviously growing up with him there when I, I grew up, you know, in the newspapers and in the culture. He's one of those folks like my grandmother, I thought would always be there. Right. Yeah. And, and, no, and, uh, I, I really, I really miss him. I really, really do. I really miss him. But, you know, he was 20 some odd years older than I am. Right. And so, uh, you know, we all have, like Farley the dog, we have our lifespan. So, and the fact that we're not here forever makes us all pretty incredibly special, you know. So, hug your, <laughs> hug your pals. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, Write absolutely. Write a letter to your absolutely. mom. <laughs> yep, <laughs> absolutely. So, just a couple of other things I just want to touch on before we wrap up. And one was you, you the Rubin Award in 1986 for the strip. That, that seemed to take you by surprise. It did take me by surprise. Uh, Jim Davis was up for the award that year, and I can't remember. There was a third. Uh, there was a third nominee, and I was I was a brand new artist. Really, I had not been doing this for very long. The strip started in '79, and so, you know, Jim was the all-out favorite to win, and and he fully expected to, and and rightfully so. And when I won, I I stood up because people pushed me to stand up. And when I accepted it, I, it took me a while to shut my mouth. I mean, I, I was really dumbstruck that I would win this award. And it, it meant so much to me. It really did. I, and I have it right here. I can, I can <laughs> look at it as we're speaking. And it still, it still kind of shines, even though it's lost its, uh, its luster. It, it's all tarnished and <laughs> gray. But it was well-deserved, and, and certainly there should be a Lifetime Achievement Award for it as well, I think. you know. And, I've seen uh, a lot of wonderful awards. I really have. The National Cartoonist Society has awarded me some wonderful, wonderful gifts, I will say. And I've had, I've had my share. I've more than my share of wonderful, <laughs> wonderful awards. I have quite a few. You're very modest. And, um, but, uh, so going on to, to another thought, okay, now you're, you're in to a different phase of your life and the strip is over, but, um, do you follow the, the comics page at all? Are there, uh, cartoonists, younger cartoonists who've come up who you admire or, um, you there know, are a couple of people that I, I really do admire and they're doing graphic novels right now. Uh-huh. There's a young man by the name of Sean Caramaker here in Vancouver, who is doing amazing work. His work is, um, it's long uh, rolls of paper that are about uh, three feet wide and maybe 20, 30, 40 feet long. And he does uh, an illustration for the full length of the paper. And it's, um, it's a graphic novel and he's on his third or fourth now. And the way it works is that when this thing is photographed, you can put on special glasses and you can actually move your way around 
his world because it's all on one long piece of paper. So he's created a virtual reality in black and white that you can only really see with these special glasses, but it's amazing. He's a wonderful artist, a fine young man, and his work is just exceptional. And the other, his name is Sean, S-E-A-N, Karamaker, K. E-R-E-M-A-K-E-R, I think. You'd have to look it up. You'll find him. He's out there. And um, the other is uh, Raina Telegmeyer, who is Uh doing, uh, she's doing graphic novels. And they're wonderful stories for young people, young adults, young kids, too. She's, it's thoughtful and caring. And you can identify so closely with her childhood and the types of things she's writing about. She's a wonderful storyteller, but she's also a very good artist. And um, and I, I just wish her all the best. I see her work out there. And I think, you know, on the graphic novel shelf, uh, she's a heavyweight for sure. Yeah. Wow. And, and is she Canadian also? Or no, she's American, I think. American. Yeah, Canada has turned out some fabulous cartoonists. The, the, there's a wealth of great cartooning talent that comes from Canada. Uh, and which oh, and I, comedy. And, uh, you know, you've got... Oh, yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and, and on and on and on. And, you know, William Shatner and all, a whole host <laughs> of other folks who come from Canada, many of whom we don't realize here in the states actually do come from canada but well, the it, whole shit's creek cast is pretty yeah weird. oh uh, yeah and sctv i used to love that show uh yeah. and and murdoch mysteries is one of my favorite shows now yeah. so, uh it's terrific there's a lot um so oh are you familiar with terry liebenson's work Yes. Uh, the pajama diaries. I always thought she was kind of a successor or might be a successor to you in, in a certain way. She just ended the pajama diaries to, uh, to my kind of regret. Um, I'm sorry to see it go, but she's got a, a very successful career in, uh, in tween books, and, uh, books for young people. But, um, she's somebody I thought sort of picked up a little bit, you know, in the wake of for better or for worse. Um, I I would hate to think that anybody would be connected that I mean it's such an individual thing it's such an individual thing you really can't compare one to the other and I confess that I have not followed a lot of I used to read everything I used to be on the comics page all the time and reading as much as I could possibly read but once I stopped doing the strip I kind of pushed my interests into other directions. I I like to paint and I certainly like to do these fabric designs and we have hundreds of fabric designs now that we're putting out there. So, um, you know, I just, there's a time and a place for everything. And, uh, you know, like I used to play the, the guitar and I thought maybe I would be a professional musician, but then there's a time and a place for everything and I can't play the guitar anymore because I never practiced and uh, I've lost it. And I, I don't beat myself up over it and I don't cry because I've lost a skill. It's just time to move on to something else. Well, I, I, I admire your, that attitude, which is just move forward all the time. And I think that that's, that's how you stay young, right? And that is uh, how you stay young. That's how you stay alive. Yeah, exactly. So, wow. Uh, well, you know, um, I think we've covered a lot of territory here and uh i've taken up a lot of your time um but i am very appreciative and i think it's been uh terrific it's been this has been a great interview and 
Jeff, I hope we meet sometime and can go have a cup of coffee somewhere because this has been such a one-sided conversation. Oh, <laughs> I've hey, talked but, to you and you know for a couple of hours now, and I, you know, I don't even know what you look like. So <laughs> I'm I'm a, a little guy with a big nose and glasses, and uh, oh. my wife would say I'm selling myself short, but that's but but I'm also short. So I, <laughs> but, well, but, it sounds like a, it sounds like you'd be fun to draw. Now that is a compliment only a cartoonist could give. <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll take it, right? And uh, uh, heck, gosh, yes. If I had uh, that drawing, I'd be proudly frame it on the wall. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, gosh, I am who I am, right? As, uh, as, as a sailor we all know and love had a penchant for saying, I am what I am, and that's all what I am. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope you dug that interview with Lynn. Uh, I, I have to say I'm still kind of overwhelmed by it all. Uh, she was a real joy to talk to and just really great. And, and I just want to say, you know, the first interview wasn't done under the most amenable of circumstances. And uh, Lynn, Lynn was a real trooper there, uh, and I really appreciate it. And uh, it wasn't the greatest of circumstances for her. And... Uh, Boy, I, I just, I'm so glad, you know, and, and so amazed, really, that, uh, you know, she put up with it. <laughs> so, uh, if you love For Better or For Worse, and you want to catch up on it, head on over to Lynn's official website, which is fborfw.com. And on uh, Instagram, I believe it's fborfw underscore official. Uh, look for that, and I think you'll find that on Instagram. So you can follow them there, and they're on Facebook too, right? So keep up with Lynn Johnston and keep up with For Better or For Worse. We've got who knows what's coming next because every day is, uh, you know, filled with um, the unexpected right now. And so, and every, uh, every day it seems like the ground is shifting beneath our feet, right? And so, you know, I've been in the middle of trying to catch up on a lot of work for my job, which has taken up a lot of time. So that's why this episode is a little later than I had hoped for it to be. Uh, but uh, we're here. <laughs> we got here. We will continue to post, right? Uh, I'm going to sit down with Kevin Much very shortly and Terry Flippo and... A number of other folks I'm trying to line up because uh, I'm going to be working out of the house for a long time now. And so maybe I'm going to, hopefully, if the work isn't as overwhelming as it's been, uh, trying to get up to speed with uh, teaching online, it, you know, maybe I'll have some, uh, my time will be more flexible, you know, for doing interviews. So I'm hoping that's going to be the case. And so therefore, I, I hope that I'm going to be able to be speaking to a lot of different people. But right now, it's hard to say what's going to be up next and when. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be very shortly. Whatever it is, I, I know it'll be something that you'll like. <laughs> so <laughs> I still have my Patreon page up there. Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. It's not really the time to be talking about Patreon, but I do appreciate your support. Uh, it goes a long way to helping the podcast. Uh, so... Wow, okay, we've come to the end of another episode. I'm, I'm sort of in the midst of, as I said, going through a lot of 
stuff for work, but it's kind of interesting work. I'm teaching a course on animation history, and so I'm diving in deep and uh, sort of going over my PowerPoints and beefing them up and doing some uh, recorded lectures, and uh, those are that, that's kind of gratifying. It's, it's hard work. There's a lot more that I'm able to put into an online lecture than I am in the class, but uh, uh, it's really gratifying, and it's just it just reminds me how much I love this medium, how much I love comics, how much I love cartoons, how much I love animation, and and how much respect and awe I have for the people uh, in the these fields, you know. Uh, the, the achievement of those who've come before us is, is always just so staggering, and so it's there for us. You know, we're very fortunate to, to be able to reach out and uh, and touch the work of Fritz Freeling or Chuck Jones or Bob Cannon or Osama Tezuka or whomever, uh, uh, Miyazaki, and, and it's all there for us to reach. You know, so much of it, even snippets of it are available online. And, and uh, you know, same is true for all of the great cartoonists we've been talking about. And that goes for, you know, every other cartoonist that, that's been on this show. Uh, you know, check them all out. I... I should publish a list of it on, on Blockhead, you know, just a list of, maybe I'll do that, put up a list of all the cartoonists who've been on the show, and I think that would be a good idea. Hey, I want to do a, a shout-out to the wonderful Khalid Birdsong, who does a wonderful comic strip uh, on Go Comics called Fried Chicken and Sushi about an expatriate American family living in Japan. Uh, it is a really unique comic. It is something that I think you are going to love. So uh, head on over to Go Comics. Check it out, okay? Because that's a terrific comic strip. But as I was saying, you know, I, I just have such love for this medium. It's filled with so much potential and so much achievement already, and there are just so many great people still working and uh, so much to find out, right? So, And that's what we will keep doing in the name of Charles Schultz uh, because he, he remains our inspiration, my inspiration. And, uh, and, I, and if you're here, I suppose he's yours too. And uh, maybe I'll go read some Peanuts. Maybe that, that, that in these days, in these difficult days, I think, you know, let's, that's a great place to go. Check out, uh, you know, Peanuts, uh, the complete collection, or any Peanuts book, right, uh, by Charles Schultz. Uh, just, they will fill you with laughter and awe and wonder at the scale of human achievement. And, uh, and I think they, there is great solace there. So uh, on that note, till next we meet. I hope you stay healthy and well, and uh, thanks for listening.